Hi and welcome to the Msingi Talks podcast, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. This podcast ventures deeper into issues of faith, advocacy, activism, and makes connections between these worlds. Psalms 89.14 states that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And here we unpack how the church, as the body of Christ and institution, can faithfully embody justice and righteousness in both word and deed. Karibuni and let's do justice. everybody um do you hear an excitement in my voice it's because i have my teacher <laughs> i'm excited to to be having a conversation with my lecturer who now is my friend who is also a mentor and someone who is a great encouragement in my work um dr professor nadine bowers dutoy she she lectured she she's the one who gave me my first my first um slide to what is development <laughs> that's true <laughs> so i am so very honored to to host you and karibu sana uh, nadine i'll just call you nadine because i never call you dr nadine okay? <laughs> 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 welcome nadine to msingi talks podcast Oh, thank you. And um, I think if we can go back to the many years in college at Cornerstone Institute, such a foundational place for many of us and um, the lessons we learned about being together, about um, working for the common good. And sometimes the, com- the working for the common good was very hurtful, but it was necessary. But my my huge takeaway from Cornerstone was the importance of community and serving the margins. I think that's a lesson that I will never, ever, ever forget that came from Cornerstone. So maybe you can start with an introduction to who you are Mm -hmm. and how your journey to justice and the development world came. Okay, so I think if I start my journey, it has to be from the womb. Yeah. I know that sounds really weird, but you know my parents. And yes. um, really, I think I was born in 1977. So I'm 44 years old this year. I can't say I'm young anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I was born during the height of the apartheid era to parents who were both church leaders and were passionate about seeing community transformation, but also social change, social political change within the country. And so at the time of my birth, my parents always tell the story that um, in the week that I was born, uh, my dad as a church leader of one of our denominations started um, unification negotiations across racial lines. That took 20 freaking years. (laughs) But... During that time, yeah, I mean, I think I witnessed my parents ministering both on a national uh, scale in terms of uh, racial justice issues and reconciliation, but then also on a micro community-based level in terms of community organizing, in terms of community development um, in the poor community in which our congregation was, was based. So really, I think my journey in terms of social justice came with my mother's milk 
Um, and, and that is how I basically, I, it was modeled. It was modeled for me that this is, this is what a Christian, being a Christian means. This is what being a Christian leader means mm-hmm. in serving community um, and seeing the holistic nature of the gospel um, transforming people and communities, not just this narrow individualistic version of salvation. That salvation is for the whole creation, the whole society, the cosmos, basically. So yeah, mother's milk, that's where it started. When you say mother's milk, we really just need to pay homage to Auntie Esme. And um, and really, I think I, I, I'll talk to her and find that out if she can join us in the podcast, like have a, an episode uh, recording of her own because she, she's a legend. Yeah, she's got stories for days, but that doesn't make it about my mother. <laughs> <laughs> like when you say that, I'm like, yeah, we need to get Auntie Esme here as well. But the reason I'm saying this is because I want to bring it back to what community for me meant um, getting to know you and getting to know uh, people at Cornerstone is that now you also opened up, you gave me access to your mom. Uh, and uh, all her networks and yes, all her, all her, her prominence. <laughs> yes, yes. And so I think when we, because today we are talking about decolonizing uh, development, I. <laughs> I find that that is the one way to do it is to open up networks and say, this is a person that I know, I love and trust. Here you go, open. Because actually my first internship when I came into Kenya was a direct result of your network. Right, right, I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) With Auntie, Auntie Judy. Judy. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so you're a professor in development. You um, could you share like what now led you to studying development and how you got there? So I mean, I spoke about my parents and mother's milk and their ministry um, in a community that was really impoverished at the time, and just seeing that um, the kind of ways that the church could engage issues of poverty and justice at grassroots levels really kind of inspired me because I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was studying, the gap that I saw was that churches were engaging at a sort of a charity level, um, but there there weren't many people actually talking about community development as we know it today. Um, And so my initial passion was to say to churches, and and one of the hindrances was this kind of dualistic spiritualization of the gospel, we're going to heaven, let's focus on that, all things will pass away, and the community is always going to be the way it is, so let's just carry on praising the Lord, hallelujah. Um, And so my inspiration was really having seen um, how community transformation could happen in a local, in and through a local church, I wanted to uh, research and study and teach people who were working on grassroots, um, Christian development practitioners uh, in terms of how to think about it, um, yeah, and how to engage. So that's where it came from. So it also came really, it's all rooted very much in a, in a personal um, 
story and a passion and just seeing the ongoing state of our communities, which unfortunately we're still seeing today. But also seeing, I think, a lot of people enter the sector and wanting to engage in terms of these issues. And so would you, what would you say has been a proud moment in your journey of uh, development and teaching development and training development practi practitioners? And also, what would you say has been a moment that has brought you deep pain? So proud moments, easy, because this is one of my proud moments. Like my favorite moments are getting to engage with former students who are doing amazing work at grassroots level. Mm. Um, so for that, for me, that that is like these kind of conversations, whether it's now in this podcast or just are you hanging out in my home or any of my students calling me up and saying, hey, how are you? I'm doing this thing. Um, yeah. You know, can I get some advice or this is what I'm doing? Can you join me? Or can you come and just see what I'm doing? That for me is out and out um, proudest moments um, in terms of my career. I think the most devastating moments, and maybe this leads into this conversation, especially in the past while, has been students from our country, from my country, South Africa, but also from the continent, mm -hmm. sharing about some of the racist neo-colonial um, practices around development that they've experienced. Yeah. Um, you know, and which in many ways they can't even voice within the sector. Mm -hmm. So when they come and study with me, this is a way to reflect, analyze and even out Mm -hmm. um, some of these injustices that they've experienced, wanting to do um, work for the common good in their communities and countries, um, and then being confronted with racism, paternalism, neoliberalism. So I think for me that, especially in the past few years, I mean, it's, it's always been there. I think it's always been a story. But um, in my journey, you know, as, a, as an educator, Part of what I do is learn from my students. Mm. Um, I think that that's good pedagogy. Yeah. And what I've been learning is, is troubling. That's ongoing in this day and age. Yeah. So um, our topic today is decolonizing development. So maybe we could start with the definition of terms as a good teacher would. What would you? <laughs> What would you say, how would you define decolonizing and also how would you define development? Okay, so I think we have to start with the, at the place that development as it is popularly known is in many ways a child of colonialism. Mm -hmm. So the colonial missionary enterprise, even though it has a double legacy, Mm -hmm. So it has both, you know, the positive and people will say, yes, infrastructure and hospitals and schools and all of that is wonderful and good. But we also know that there was a nefarious side to colonialism, slavery, um, and also the, the robbing of the natural resources of Africa, which goes on till this very day in a different form. Mm -hmm. um, and so much of colonial enterprise and the initial sort of um, seeds of, of development on our continent 
uh, was sown. There's a wonderful article by Manji and Cole written, sure, like many years ago, called The Missionary Position. Uh, interestingly <laughs> enough. And <laughs> it, I it, it talks. That. Yeah, yeah, you must read that article. I mean, yeah. I think that they're totally spot on. They um, basically say that although the missionaries did good, and there were, so I'm not saying colonialism was good, right? But though the missionaries did some good, much of what they did was also to pacify the masses through charitable action. Mm, yeah. And so, um, you know, development itself, and particularly macro development in its sort of neoliberal guise of modernization, where we imagine that, you know, the West is best and that we need to mimic what the West has done and that the benefits of the economy will trickle down to the poor, all, fa all proven fallacies today, mm -hmm. um, you know, are some of the roots of development. So development is, is implicitly related to colonialism and also missionary colonialism, yeah. um, but then also to, you know, the modernization theory and modernity as a whole sort of project and therefore capitalism, neoliberalism, um, et cetera. So when we, when we want to de decolonize, we actually first need to critique some of those things mm -hmm. and understand our position as Africans doing the work within that socio-historical context and the ways that it's still plays itself out today, because decolonizing anything means decentering what was at the center, i.e. all the things I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, neocolonialism, modernization theory, um, uh, white is best, mm -hmm. <laughs> West is best is white is best, all of those notions we actually have to decenter. We're not throwing a baby away with bathwood and saying, oh, you know, the West is completely and utterly evil, but we do need to recognize that much evil and systemic injustice was perpetuated on the backs of colonialism and then sort of neoliberal developmentalism. I hope that makes sense. So we can talk a little bit more about what that, what unpack what then decolonizing would, would mean at mm -hmm. grassroots. Yeah. And so... So it's decentering the process of the community transformation process from the outsider. That's what exactly exactly exactly. So I mean, I think a lot of development, Western notions of development, exactly, Carol, is outside in, mm -hmm. not yeah. inside out. Yeah. And as much as many practitioners will use the term "people first, um, people centered development." More often than not, it's donor-centered development. Yes. It's yes. Western-agendered-centered development. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these terms become lip service, even though I think Freire and Corton and some of those thinkers, um, you know, they were trying to put the emphasis back on the community. Much of what we do is dictated from outside. All right. Um, so how how do we transition what's that process of transitioning development from outside when 
when first the roots of development, the theories, the development theories are all Western, most of them, the funds are Western. I keep saying that I've ran Msingi for three years and I've, I've not had uh, a donor, quote unquote, you know, mm. but if I was a white man I would already have had like 10, 30 fundings. That is true. I've, I've had, I can't, you write proposals, you, 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 you still have, I have to prove myself, you know, that, and I am local, I am in the community, I'm doing the work, but I have to prove myself in ways that a young 21, 22, 23-year-old white male who would come into my community and do the work that I'm doing. They would come already with funding. How, how do we ever do development on an equal footing in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're speaking to goes to that notion of white supremacy and white saviorhood. Um, and those are things that people in the sector, particularly in the West, do not want to deal with. Um, I think they're okay with the term toxic charity by now and did aid, you know, all those things. But to really confront the ways in which, um, you know, what actually lies at the root is white supremacy rooted in a colonial thought pattern. Yes. We may not have colonialism anymore, but we have neocolonialism. Yeah. And the fact that many of these individuals actually become part of a neoliberal way of functioning. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and, and yesterday I was just sitting with a friend, also an FBO leader, also a black woman, saying exactly what you're saying, saying that my predecessor um, didn't have to jump over the hurdles which I have to in terms of legitimizing even the way that spending, for example, mm. is down within the organization. Yeah. Um, so I think even like what you're saying about this, this young white male coming from outside, I mean, again, that's that missionary, um, you know, sort of approach to things. So how, getting to the how do we do it? I think we start there and that's the hard, I think that's the difficult side. How do you do it without alienating your foreign donors? Um, want to feel good about giving and now you're making them feel guilty um, and you know taking on all these difficult issues and maybe the the question would be why is it easier for you to give to a white a white charity deal with your inner things why is it for easier for you to give to an inexperienced um, or maybe experienced, let's not say all of them are inexperienced, but why do you feel your money is safer or your skills are safer or you're safer with, um, with outsiders who come into a community than you are with someone who's grown in the community and who knows the community. And when, when I, if I messed up, they know my mother. <laughs> it's true. The accountability is there, right? Yes. If I mess up, they know my mother. If I run away with people's money, they know my mother and my father and my grandmother. So 
I don't know. I'm trying to understand, but also maybe it's because of the origins of development. Where would you say is the origins of development? Like what, what was that process that, I know you said it's a byproduct of missionary work and uh, colonialism, but is there like a date where you can say in April to 1950 something development the industry development was born. <laughs> there's, there's different there's different time zones, right? So the one part of the roots is in um, missionary colonialism. So if you look at that as the start, then if you think about what you're saying now, what was happening at the same time that these people were trying to civilize, for example, Africa, they were also taking slaves, right? And the reason why they thought that they could trade slaves, slaves were less than human. Slaves were subhuman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they were bringing industrialization, modernization to these so-called subhumans who remained on the continent, who they didn't extract. So there's that weird parallel in, in that notion. And that's why I keep coming back to this notion of white supremacy. If we're going to decolonize, we have to think about how were people thought of, um, they, were, they were subjectified, they were objects, sorry, they were not subject, they were objectified, right? Mm -hmm. Objects yeah. of development, objects of charity, objects of slavery, not fully human. Mm. And I think in development practice, they're going to this whole notion of why would you fund um, a white foreigner versus an indigenous black person? Because when you start to unravel it, it's about, are you, it's the question mark of actually, are you fully human? Mm. That's actually the point of it. That's why we have to deconstruct it. Wow. To that point. And that's why as Christians, the whole notion of being made in the image of God is not an airy-fairy thing. Mm. It, it has to be a lived reality. We talk about human dignity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not just about human rights as an abstract concept, or mm. it's actually in these interactions, in these practices recognizing equality of persons. Mm. Um, and I mean, you, was, you were making that example. I mean, I think of an example of um, where I sent my students sort of for service learning to organizations. One white run, but a very, I would say, conscious white person who gets it. And the other organization run like totally black run and being transitioned from white run organization to completely black run, black owned. Mm. Same area, situated in the same area. White local churches had student volunteers. The black run organization desperately needed student volunteers for their after school programs. Mm. The white organization also needed student volunteers. Where did the white churches gravitate. Take a guess. The white one. The white run organization. Why? When, when I asked the questions around that, why? They were more organized. 
Oh, we know what that means. Yes. And they could not in their mind deconstruct what that was actually saying. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so really, I mean, I'm more and more convinced this notion of racism, um, the roots, the systemic sin of, of racism um, in the struggle between the global north and the global south, but also within a country like my own, the rich and the poor, the have and the have nots, yeah. um, which we in, my, in South Africa is still racially skewed, is, is still lying at the root of that thing. Yeah. So, so with that, um, I'm coming. Will, will we ever not need development? Because I find that um, it's also an industry, and for the industry to, um, and there's the international development, which is a whole, like the world is yeah. a whole thing. Then there's the local community development, and. Poverty needs to be there for, for development to, to happen. And so you can't work out, you can't work yourself out of the job. So you you need to to leave some some poverty somewhere just so that you can also make money. Are we ready to deal with that? Are we ready to have that? <laughs> but I mean, if anything that I taught you at community development was that we're supposed to work. Ourselves I would remember <laughs> how many years oh, later yeah. yourself out of a job, Carol. I remember <laughs> that that actually is the essence of a Freirian, you know, Paulo Freirian sort of influenced community development ethos is to work ourselves out of problem. You're actually successful when you don't have that job anymore. But you're hundred percent right. I think development is an industry that creates a lot of jobs especially for your donor organizations who get paid often many of the people in those organizations disproportionate amounts of um of money i I mean the other day like i I follow this facebook post the professor is in okay and so she was she's like she's a very woke you know white american but she was hosting this um uh, like a not a podcast like just like a blog um by a person who had left academia so it was an example of someone who had left academia and you know made it in the real world okay so basically saying there's hopeful people that you don't the, the academic jobs are very scarce so you know you can make it in the world doing other things and I was actually quite disgusted because the story was about this woman who was writing a story about how she had a PhD in English, mm-hmm. and now she's a big wig in the international development sector. And I was like, how does a person who has a PhD in English in America become a big wig in an international development organization with no development experience, training. So it's a success story of an academic making a transition, Mm. but in many ways, it's actually a really puke story um, about how the development sector um, operates. So 
And this is it because I, as Carol, would not be given that job at that international level. And even the income and economic disparity in terms of um, Kenya, Kenya is actually, <laughs> when we look at the Kenyan example, we have quite a number of uh, NGOs. And then also the UN is here. Right. And so the, um, the obscene amount of money that is used in salaries in the upkeep of the expatriates at the expense of local, of the locals, sometimes, and you hear of stories of how I will train someone who, who's just come very green, has absolutely no information about what's mm. happening. And then they become my, my boss like five times removed. And he or she does absolutely nothing in terms of, it's the people who do all the work, he gets the, the glory, she gets the glory. <sighs> I think the process of decolonizing development needs for whiteness to, to die, one, but it also means for white people to believe that they're not superhuman, but they're merely human. Exactly. And I mean, that goes back to Mema Mathilogeny, to the Holy Imago Day. Yes. I mean, the Imago Day is the great equalizer if we really take it at face value. The other aspect of decolonizing is decolonizing our minds. Yes, that's true. So we have also been um, dehumanized by the system of whiteness. Mm. I mean, and I mean, yeah, yeah, we're not talking about white people as much as individual white people fit into a system, we're talking about a system. Yeah. And so, you know, we ourselves do not really truly believe that we can free ourselves from some of these shackles. I mean, I'm really inspired by, by Biko. I mean, I don't know what would happen if Biko still lived today, um, but you know, Steve Biko in South Africa uh, talked a lot about decolonizing your mind. Yes. And I think if you're going to decolonize development, you, you sometimes have to start with your own mind as a development practitioner, but then also the people who have been trained by neoliberal whiteness, neocolonialism to, you know, mm. to be dependent. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of deconstructing the whole notion of who am I? What am I created? I have intrinsic value because the system tells you you have no value. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the political, social, often economic systems tell you that. And then the development industry, also in the way that programs are run often, tells the beneficiaries mm. that, that, you know, they need this program to be released from poverty. So I think that whole thing of decolonizing um, our minds um, is also part of the starting point on our side. So the white, so white supremacy is done a mind game on everybody mm. um, and entrenched a system which has dehumanized everybody to the point where we believe our position in the system. Um, we believe, and I mean, and I think I mean, I, 
I'm middle class, so I can't speak for poor people. Um, but, you know, we're told where we belong in the system, economically, socially, politically, even religiously. That's why so many um, people are prey, particularly people who are socioeconomically poor, for mm. prey to these prosperity people. And I don't know how different they are really to some of our, the way we do development. Yeah. And and so um, I'm looking at sometimes is why do we need development? I feel like it's a cycle. And so we start from, um, from, if we start at a clean slate, you look at the political aspect of it where um, some countries have had to pay reparations to their uh, colonizing countries. Yeah. So you colonize me, you extract, you, you keep extracting from me, but then I have to pay you reparations. And that's like in Haiti. And now Haiti is apparently the, the poorest country in the world, but in the in some years back, they paid um, France millions and millions and millions of, of dollars for them to stop being colonized. Then you look at then corruption, present corruption in local governments, but local governments, international governments, um, look at corruption in, in economic blocks, mm -hmm. I would say, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. are oppressive to, to, one, to one, the producer. Because like, if you look at cocoa production, you look at um, yeah. gold mining, you look at cobalt, you look at um, diamond minings, that the mm -hmm. country, their countries do not benefit from, from the resources. Uh, I think for me, and also the place of war, mm -hmm. the place of war as a, that's instigated. So that's instigated externally and perpetuated locally. And so the, this, there are so many moving moving wheels and moving blocks in, in the development conversation because after we've instigated war internally and externally, then UN will whoop in and save the day. Mm -hmm. You know, all these large organizations will come in and save the day. What, how, what would it take for us to be restored to I would what I always say factory settings like what would it take knowing that there's so many there's so many things that bring under development there's so there's selfishness there's uh, imperialism there's continued imperialism in an ideal world where we don't need development what what is happening oh that's a that's a tough question because it's a, I think we're living in a complex, like you said, you're living in a complex environment with so many different interlocking complexities. Um, for me, an ideal world would be a world where everybody can flourish. Mm -hmm. um, where everybody can experience fullness of life. Um, and I mean, I don't know if there's no quick fix answer. Mm. I think that 
each in our own um, practice, especially development practitioners, um, you know, church leaders, if we really took the notion of pushing for accountability in the spaces where we have influence, you know, against corruption and social justice, and if we were brave enough um, to take on the way that these things play out, each of us um, um, act or actors, social actors in different places and at different levels. And the problem is that I think Christians especially, because of our understanding as the gospel Sunday, me, my, and G, me and Jesus, um, if each of us took accountability in those various spaces, we've got Christians working in the UN, we've got Christians working in government, but we don't under fully understand what human flourishing means, what mm. this shalom message of the gospel uh, means. We've restored, we've you know, reduced it to a very, very small sort of picture. So, I mean, I don't think there's any one quick fix. Um, I think for me, it's in my corner where I have my influence um, constantly pushing, questioning, um, holding people and systems to to account and mm. calling out stuff like saviorism mm. and neoliberal exploitation. Um, but I think the church, if you're talking about Christian development practitioners, but also the development industry, we are too much in the pockets of governments. We're too beholden to um, to power, mm. um, and and I think that is what keeps us in this bind. But I mean, it, it costs. Eh? People who have done this, we know. We see leaders who tried um, to engage these systems being assassinated, um, mm. and so forth. So it's going to, it's going to be costly if and when and how we do it. But we start where we are. Yeah, that's that. That's a good development principle. Start where you are with what you have. Asset-based community development. Exactly. What do you have? What do you have in your hand? What is it that you have in your hands? Singi is a Swahili word meaning foundation. Our name and mandate comes from Psalms 89.14. We host engaging conversations on faith, social justice, and advocacy across all our social media platforms. We also offer training and consultancy services to help you navigate the world of social justice and faith. To engage with us, visit our website, www.msingitrust.org, follow us on all our social media handles at Trust, or email us on info at msingitrust.org. I'm also thinking of when you talk about what is it that you have in the in your hands, I'm also talking thinking about how do we decolonize resource mobilization and also resource allocation because there's and there's the reality about the people with the money the people the money is in the global north so i mean it's, it starts with you think about the asset-based development mm -hmm. if we see assets only as financial then we're already we've gone us. So that needs-based approach, which required this heavy project-based 
capital in financial capital investment approach we've seen yeah. doesn't it doesn't work it's not sustainable anyway and it keeps us in that loop yeah. of dependency um, and constantly having come back to the donor and report to the donor the things that they want to hear uh, from those lovely log friends that we drew oh. up for them oh with my god beautiful <laughs> outcomes <laughs> do you, do you, can i tell you that my worst class that i had was when we were doing the log frame like i, I like i actually still remember where we were i was like this doesn't make sense <laughs> listen probably because you were taught by a bad lecture on that <laughs> no it wasn't who was teaching was us not me it wasn't you. I, d- I don't remember. I don't think it was you. I taught it one year and never again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I mean, this is exactly why I've critiqued the SDGs. I mean, I remember being in this meeting with um, academics. Tell, tell us what SDGs are. The, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development oh, the Goals SDGs. of the, yeah, of yes. the UN. Yes. So I'm in this meeting with some academics and some practitioners and some international donors, right? Like it's an academic type sort of conference. And so I present this paper on decolonizing development where I say like the SDGs are, you know, another Western development agenda, which imposes these indicators again on us at grassroots level and the ways in that the M&E frameworks have to work to fit with the SDGs and da da da. Oh my goodness, the the foreign donor was mad. (laughs) He was super upset with me. How can I critique the SDGs and they are accepted and even in you know, international church ecumenical circles, this is the way that we should look at development. And afterwards, it was quite ironic. Some of the um, female, actually, Western development practitioners came to me during lunchtime and they said, you were spot on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we completely yes. <laughs> agree with you. Um, but, okay, getting back, what was the question again, Carol? Sorry, I went on our trip there about the institute. Um, the question was, what, what was it? Now I'm also lost. This is what happened when... <laughs> And we're in conversation, but I think we were talking about we talked about decolonizing resource mobilization. The donor, yeah, yeah, yeah. Donors, decolonizing yeah. resources. Oh, yeah. And then I started with the whole thing of assets not only being financial. Yeah. Um, and just last week I was sitting with a friend, also a person of color, um, who's the leader of an organization which is quite heavily funded by American donors, who this person has discovered are very Trumpist. And so this person is really conflicted now. Um, do I accept this money from these people who, you know, have such a low view who are, uh, he wasn't judging, but saying, you know, hold some of these views which are problematic and unjust. What about self-reliance? Yeah. So I think we have to talk more about the notion of self-reliance of small scale indigenous development where people um you know find themselves but i, I know i know that's not completely living also in real in the real world mm. um because bills have you know, to be paid we... 
staff members need to be paid. Um, you need to be just because you have to pay just wages as well. You can't exactly. I mean, having known having worked for organization, <laughs> with oh, yes. NGO, we will not mention names. We, you know, yes. it, it was not the case. I did it for the love, but I mean, yes, you are ultimately right. Do it for the love, but you should be paid just wages for the work that you do. But I mean, again, it goes back to this, this, this whole thing of decolonizing the minds of our people who, yeah, who don't, who may not buy into the fact that this is in their interest to support. Um, because we are used to, and I include myself here, we are used to getting from outside. So investing in our own thing, which should be a no-brainer, mm. um, you know, is, is, is seen as, as strange. And I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the whole way that during apartheid, your, your, what was the poor white problem mm. turned into apartheid. Um, it was an evil you, way uh, of doing please it. Please explain what the poor white problem is, because I find sure. that. Oh, yeah, okay. Also, international audience. So yeah. in, in South Africa, right, during the 1930s repression, and prior to the depression, um, many Afrikaans white people who we would later know as those who became, um, you know, the, the founders of the whole apartheid, formalized apartheid system, were actually very poor. And the churches were part of mobilizing um, and saying, we need to address this poor white problem and raise our people up. And so during that time, they started sort of what in South Africa today actually would probably be like a stockpile, <laughs> um, you know, community savings, um, banks and networks to help, of course, only their community and only their people. Mm -hmm. And they would later form the bedrock for apartheid and the kind of socioeconomic racially entrenched socioeconomic inequality that we still see in South Africa today. Now, that's a very horrible example of self-reliance in a way. Um, but, uh, you know, taken to the extreme and, and rooted obviously in white supremacy and, and racist notions of superiority of one race over and against another and so forth. I mean, I think if we, we decolonize, we don't want to start from that yeah. premise but we rather want to start from the premise of um we need to invest in our own we need to be self-reliant how do we invest in our own communities what we more see is is flight outside out of our communities we want to escape poverty and once we're gone we never come back yeah um so i mean churches and other sort of grassroots civic organizations came play, I think, a very important role in people re, um, yeah, relearning the realities actually of Ubuntu, mm. basically. Yeah, because when you were talking, I was like, that's Ubuntu. You are yeah. because I am and we are, yeah. And um, I'm also thinking about how how it's hard. We need to talk mm. about how it's really hard to do community development in your own community. The prophet is never recognized <laughs> in their own hometown. 
it is very difficult to to do development in your community and i think it's because no one is there's no rubber gloves around you your your caro uh, the child of Nanga and Nyokafi who stay down there. So even me personally, like I, I recently feel like I now know um, what Msingi will look like in the next 10 or 15 years. I feel like that. Mm. And it's, it's back home. It's back to where I am. It's around that area to ground that. And it's scary. It is mortifying because you know the complexities of home. Mm-hmm. And this is also why for missionaries and for, uh, for expatriates, most of them have absolutely no idea about their, their areas where they come from, the complexities around their area. Most uh, white missionaries, their first encounter with black people is in Africa, never in mm. that context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they would have to deal with, you'd have to deal with why you're in the same country and then there's this kind of inequality. It's easier to deal with an inequality a plane ride away and jet lag away than it is <laughs> around your place. And so we also need to, as we are decolonizing development work, we need to decol to to tell people that it's hard, it's hard work. Mm. Community mm. work is hard. Com- sometimes it's a thankless job and you don't see the impact. Sometimes your impact will only be felt 10 years later. Mm-hmm. And that is the slow work. Mm-hmm. Yes. And for the process of decolonizing is to, to desist from seeing fast results. Mm. I think that is a that is a good point, and I mean that is a in in the in the Freudian sense of development, that's very in line. I I think what you say now about the the pain of it, Carol, that you're speaking about. Yeah. Yesterday, sitting with this friend again, she was saying the same thing to me. Um, how much easier it was for predecessors who were white and well-meaning and wonderful people. Mm. Um, you know, even to be accepted yes. by the people in the local community, to be listened to by the people in the local community mm. um, because of the way that whiteness has been constructed well in South African society. Mm-hmm. Um, and then saying, you know, as a black person coming in, being able to understand the language and hear what people are actually saying. Mm. Though. But now you hear the, the answer. Now, yeah, you, you hear the gossip. You hear the you gossip. Can, and you can read body language. You can, oh man, community work is actually thrilling. <laughs> but that ultimately means that real change is more possible. Because then people are not just smiling with their teeth. Yes, yes, yeah. It's more painful. I think it's much harder work for um, indigenous people working in the sector in South Africa, I mean, the the, the sector is also still largely white-run, the NGO, the NPO sector. Yeah. And it is much more difficult for um, 
black leaders or indigenous leaders to come into these organizations for those reasons. But it also ultimately in the long run, I believe <laughs> much more effective because people from the outside, even myself going to, you know, being a person of color, but going to a community where I don't understand the culture, how am I going to do development that really changes anything? Because you can't do development without understanding the social cultural systems, which are connected to the political and the religious and the, 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 the. Mm -hmm. so, um, and that's also why the work you're doing is exhausting because you understand the complexities yeah. um, of the, you know, of the situation of the culture of all of the dynamics that you that you were born into, and then the thing of the profit. <laughs> you have to work so much harder to be respected. And also, you doubt yourself. I think for me, I I feel that I have. I have to know exactly what I'm doing before I step into my own space. I don't know if you understand it. Like I need to, I need to have a plan, which is also, I find very wrong because we are working with assets-based communities. I was just gonna say. <laughs> but, but the planner in me, the, the, empath in me the the because also you see the other thing with development practitioners we have a savior mentality that we have to constantly mm -hmm. we have to constantly mm -hmm. work against that and that is the thing but also if you think about your own culture does it give a lot of um um credit to authority figures mm, yeah mm -hmm. and so so, I mean, I think it's also trying to discern, is it my savior complex mm -hmm. or the fact that I'm just as a person feeling out of control, so I need to control this environment? Or also, is this what the culture expects of me? Mm -hmm. And I will not be successful mm -hmm. if I'm not seen as having a plan or authority. Yes. And you're starting from scratch, like what, Carol? Why are you starting from scratch? Please start with something already made. And so that that's that's the pressure I feel because like start with something concrete, like come with concreteness and this mm. don't start with nothing. So um, then how do we, de I feel like we've talked about decolonizing resource mobilization. How do we decolonize resource mobilization at the macro level? <laughs> That's a difficult one because that takes into that whole north-south dynamic and risking losing financial resources. Yeah. You know, we talk about financial donor resources if you speak out yeah. against donor practices that are often unethical. Yes. They would not be tolerated in their own country, mm. but they would come to Africa and then, you know, the way they do appointments, all of that stuff. Um, uh, that takes brave, that takes brave people at that level. Yeah engaging those things. The other day around the dinner table, um, Mother and I were having this conversation and she was saying how 
she was calling out this donor imbalance. And I'm like, you still have to do that, you know? Yeah. At age 70, when you've been working in, um, you know, the church development sector for 30 odd years, you still have to be calling the stuff out. No, mm -hmm. we should be beyond that, but we're not. Yeah. Um, and, and I think also like, relational partnerships. I mean, when you talk about decolonization, you have to talk about power, right? Mm -hmm. Liberation, you have to talk about power mm -hmm. and power imbalances and the way that finances affect those um, power imbalances. And the thing is, we're so dependent on um, that and we also fall into the trap of these unequal, I mean, we, it's already there, the unequal relations are there but we start to behave in the way that these patterns have been set out yeah. or the structures have been uh, engaged to operate. Yeah. Um, resisting it is hard though. I mean, that, that's tough. I'm not, you know, I'm an academic, so I'm talking there. Mm. <laughs> that's tough yeah. in any arena. In my work situation, I must engage powers and it's tough. Mm. Um, and I have a lot of relative power in that structure. Yeah. So, um, but I think us also, if we decolonize our mind, minds as a start, if we understand our value, the value that we add also, yes, um, and we come with that um, secure knowledge to the table, mm -hmm. um, as much as we don't want to be transactional, but there is that element to it. Yes. And say, this is who we are. This is what, you know, and in, in Christian language, often Christianese language is being used to abuse, mm. but it can also be used to say, I've been called by God to be doing this work. Mm. This is what, this is what my organization contributes and brings to the table in terms of, so now Christian setup, right? A king, you know, kingdom understanding and, you know, this is, how do we negotiate this partnership? Mm. Um, but if we, we are so dependent, people, and we are, you know, we're so dependent, we need these people, we need this organization. Then, so the departure point, I think, is one of the places to start. But that's tough. That's still tough in real life. It's tough. <laughs> it's still and, uh, an ongoing struggle. Yes. As you're speaking, I'm thinking also that you need us. You need our poverty. This is again. <laughs> You're coming here. You need our poverty. And so please respect also our poverty as well. <laughs> and that sounds harsh, but we really, the poverty that's here is your employer. Yeah, sure, that's cattle. That's a, that is a very, very interesting way of putting it. Yes. And and so you're benefiting from this poverty. And so like, man, I, I don't even know then what that lends us to thinking, like where do we think? Because yeah, it's like the military needs war for, for, for them to make money. <laughs> there are people who, we need to also accept that there are people who depend on things going wrong for 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 them to earn an income 
Wow. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way, I must say. Yeah. That's a quotable quote. Yeah. So what in the work, because you've, you've been in this field for long, what, what would we say as we are winding up are the things that, what positive steps can you say you've seen in this field, in the development field, in the, in the, in this space of decolonizing development and um, local community-led uh, uh, development practices? I think one of the things, so a few years ago, did a study on, um, quite recently, on faith-based organizations and more looking at does faith matter, the role of faith. Mm-hmm. But in analyzing some of the, the the donor stats and things like that, and and then interviewing FBO leaders, what I saw emerge was at least in South Africa, <coughs> FBO leaders start to say we are driven by our own calling and identity, mm-hmm. not by donor agendas. Yeah. Uh, some of them saying we told the donor get off <laughs> yeah. if you're not. If you're not buying into what we are selling, what we're doing, mm-hmm. we're not interested in partnering with you. Mm. So I think I'm seeing positives. I think I'm seeing FBO leaders um, in the faith-based sector at least saying we are more driven um, by our own identity and calling than we are by donor agenda. So that's a really positive thing. Mm-hmm. Other thing I'm seeing is... Um, FBO leadership starting to diversify. Mm. Um, um, you know, white FBO leaders recognizing the way that whiteness has has damaged um, also them as a leader. Yeah. Um, and wanting to to give up power and wanting to understand better. Um, and yeah, and giving up power even. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, in the interest of that organization and community, knowing that um, the, the organization working in that community would be better served mm. by a person of color. Yeah. So I, I've seen some canotic moves, actually. <laughs> mm. um, some self-emptying, um, you know, and, and reflection in the sector. I've also recently, I got a call from leader of FPO network saying to me, we need to talk about the race stuff and the mm-hmm. power stuff as, yep. as FPO leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't hide away from this anymore. If we're saying we're doing people-centered development and we believe that injustice is at the roots of poverty, then this is one of the injustices in our country that is ongoing that we need to deal with, or we'll simply be perpetuating injustice in our local communities, thinking we're doing good, but actually doing more harm. Mm-hmm. So I like so I've personally, um, yeah, I've personally actually been encouraged if I think about it in the in the past few years by yeah. some of these moves. Oh, man, so there is change, and I I feel especially this year, uh, this past 10, 20 years, um, colonizing conversation has really, and internet has also helped, I feel, with the decolonizing yeah. conversation and fast-track yes. conversation yeah. that you can't 
you can't sit pretty and not think about decolonizing. You, you either have to be okay with uh, the colonized uh, development or be on the process of decolonizing development. And you, it's, it can't be, and also you because I think a lot of people say that we are not, we are not affected by uh, a development or a structure that is uh, neo-colonial, is patriarchal, and is uh, is also neoliberal. And so we can't say that these things don't affect us. And if, if we say we, it doesn't affect us, we are simply not paying attention. Yeah. Ooh, do you have any questions? <laughs> or anything that you wanted to speak about that we've not spoken about? Sure. I think we covered, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think the only thing that we didn't speak about, okay, not the only thing, but one of the things we didn't speak about is also this development professionalism. Mm. Um, you know, and I think the way that we um like we spoke about the log frames and all of these things is part of that sort of managerial development professionalism. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that also needs to be interrogated. Maybe a conversation for another day. Can I, can I just share how many times yes. I'm like, I, I sit down, I'm like, I, God, when I started Msingi, it, I did not start to do log frame. No, I've not done a log frame yet. I did not, uh, no, we have done a log frame. I did not start it to do proposals, to do budgets, to do all those things. And you see now, because you're one person doing all of these things, you have to, at the initial stages, you have to think about the project, you have to implement the project, you have to fund the project somehow, you have to report and the project. Yeah. And so it's it's actually, so you're left with 20% energy to do the development work. <laughs> I think that's, that right there <laughs> is exactly the problem. And where a lot of the money goes, yes. even the international money then rather to the actual work. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, no, I think we've had a really rich conversation. You've helped me to think about some other perspectives as well. Can, can we, as we, are end, as we are wrapping up, now we are those pastors who say, one, I have only one last chance. <laughs> because my, point, my last point. <laughs> my last point, my last point. I'm learning. That, yes, is that most of these donor donor funds do not pay for admin costs and what how do what do you talk about that because we we were talking we were sharing with a group of women who founded an organizations and the guys were like no we are not paying for admin fees and so you you wonder how do you how exactly how will this work be done yeah i call it the big black hole yeah. And how the work is done mm -hmm. is often by the development practitioners not being paid mm -hmm. yeah, or being paid very little. Yeah. Um, and so that, yeah, you're mentioning something that's a really a thing, an equity issue mm. in development work. Mm. 
It's the people like, oh, and what happens? It's the people doing the work get sacrificed in the process. That's also why sometimes in development work there's a high turnover. Mm, yes. Um, and, and if you are looking at decolonizing development and you want indigenous people doing development, they already often have a generational backlog. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? In terms of wealth. Mm-hmm. And then have to come in and are punished again. Yes. That's true. Um, and so even in the FPSCT in South Africa, you'll see some of the white-led organizations, even the ones led by people of color, are often uh, more especially women mm. who have wealthy spouses or themselves mm-hmm. have been in the business and earned money you know, yeah. and can afford <laughs> mm. to work in the sector. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that is also what I'm seeing now with, with, um, with Black people and people of color, sometimes giving up lucrative jobs to work in the faith-based sector mm-hmm. in order to decolonize development. You know, they may not use those grand terms Mm. Um, but in order to see kind of people-centered participatory development where, you know, grassroots voices count, but then also being impoverished yeah. in the process. Yeah, and the, the privilege that comes with, because uh, gener- when there's, gener- there's generational um, backlog yeah. in terms mm. of resources, there's someone mm. who has generational wealth. And so the mm-hmm. people who have generational wealth can really come into an organization and, and volunteer to do a very high, high-paced uh, thing. And then I come and say, I'm really legitimately the mm. first in my family to have a degree. Mm. And so <laughs> when your family, your first degree was in the 1960s, I have 50 years to cover. That's right. Right. You know, and I'm actually saying this from a personal perspective. I was the first one to have a degree in my family. And mm, so I remember. when I am having the conversation around um, around inequity, it's personal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not far-fetched. It's not. And so, and also... I will want for my siblings, for my relatives to also have access to the education that I've got and all that. Mm. So this is personal. This this development work, the decolonizing is personal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because a lot of times people think that it's, it's out there. But no, it's in in it's in here. It's real. It's alive. It's it's that we didn't have access to education because of A, B, C, and D. It's uh, it's that now I cannot be paid the amount of money that I need to be paid because, and so I still need to depend on on people for my day to day so that 
we don't be dipping. Like it's all messy. I don't know if you if you're understanding what I'm saying. I'm totally understanding what you're saying. Totally yeah. understanding it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's exactly, I mean, it's that it's that sort of sadness and pain, but that brought you to where you're at, right? It's that experience that brought you to where you're at. Because yes. it's personal. Yes. Um the bad thing is that the system is set up sometimes to exploit that mm-hmm. being personal. Yeah. Um, the positive thing is that because it's personal, because it's contextual, deeply contextual, yeah. you have a better idea of how to change mm-hmm. the situation of your community than someone from the outside for whom it's, it's not a living thing and they can leave at any time they want to. Yeah, because I've, I've, there's a big organization that um, is in my area that used to be a feeding program for kids. And right now it's all walled up. Mm. It's, it's become professionalized. It's become, I don't even know who it helps in the community. And so something that started as a home for special needs children is now this massive um, organization that has bricks all over and is is in constant um, conflict with the community around um, rest areas around things. And so even when I am going back to where I am is that's one of the most, things that we are going to be fighting is that <laughs> that's not it that you started as for the people we need a different yeah man so we can as you we can, can go on we can, have, we can have this conversation for we've had this conversation for more than 12 years now do you know that <laughs> actually for 13 years is it 13 years is it 13 yeah. years more yeah so it could be even longer it could be because I was there in 2008 from 2008. 2008, yes. 2008, yeah. wow. These 13 years. These 13 years. So definitely this this has been a continuation of 13 years of conversation. So we definitely cannot capture everything. But thank you so much, Nadine, for, for honoring uh, this invite. And also thank you for the positive impact that uh, you've had on my and many people's lives. You are, I, I want to give you your flowers now. Oh, don't make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> no, because a lot of times we never tell people how, what they mean to us until it's too late. Uh, but for me, Nadine, you've, you've taught me to own my, to own my space. I remember the time you came, you came for a conference here in Nairobi and you were the only woman. <laughs> you remember that conference? <laughs> Do you remember it? In Limuru. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I remember. You were like, like two, three women and you, you were refusing and refuting things. And I think when I, my bravery and my voice really in all honesty comes from being in the presence of people like you 
and of you, your mom, and other women who, who just really say it as it is, because as it is, it, it's how it is, and it needs to be said. And thank you for your consistency in in praying for me, in uh, praying with me, crying with me. <laughs> and, and I always tell guys, if ever people say that they are self-made, it's a lie. I am made because, uh, because there's a community around me and Nadine is definitely part of that community. So thank you for, for being part of my community. Love you, Carol. I'm, I'm privileged to still be part of it. I'm privileged that you've dragged me along <laughs> with you. And um, you really have no option. <laughs> no option. <laughs> and, and then I think, you know, that, that role of sort of teacher and student is switched in many ways now as you are. You out there. Um, and I'm learning from you yeah. in different ways. So, yeah, thank you for my flowers. Um, that's the, yeah. the stuff that makes teaching worthwhile. And I don't think I can claim all that credit that you've given me, but I'm just glad that I've got to, and I still get to walk this journey with you. Mm -hmm. Like that's, yeah, that's, that's what makes my life meaningful and like keeps me on this, this path. Cause academia can sometimes be very eerie fairy. Mm -hmm. um, but People like you remind me what's real, mm. what matters. Um, yeah, and just to keep teaching and to keep asking those hard questions yeah. in those powerful places. Yes. Um, because it matters. And it, even though it feels like it's never going to make a difference, mm. it does. Claiming our spaces is the yeah. first step. And with that, that's the best way to finish it, uh, to finish this conversation that the decolonizing process is, the first step is claiming your space. So thank you, everyone. Amen. Please remember to share the podcast uh, to as many people as possible and would love to hear any sort of feedback from you guys on all our pages and yeah. Alrighty, thank you. If you've been inspired, challenged, and or enjoyed this conversation and would like to contribute to this and catch up with more of such, remember to follow us on social media at Trust, share this podcast with your friends and family, and also consider making a donation to support the production of this podcast. Donations can be made through PayPal, msingikenya at gmail.com, Patreon at msingikenya, or through M-Pesa plus 254-792-176-030. Kwaherini, and thank you for joining us.